Hello, I'm Peter Mayers. Welcome to Big Ideas on ABC Radio National and the first Boyer Lecture for 2010, coming to you from the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas in Melbourne. Each year since 1959, the ABC board has selected a distinguished Australian to present six lectures expressing their thoughts on a major topic of concern to the nation. The Boyer Lectures are named after the late Sir Richard Boyer, a former chairman of the ABC. And this year, the 51st Boyer Lecturer is Professor Glyn Davis, AC, Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Melbourne. He has called his lecture series The Republic of Learning, and to be exploring the landscape of higher education in Australia and its potential to transform the nation in the 21st century. It's a topic Glyn Davis is uniquely well-placed to address. Not only is the head of a Sandstone University, and in fact the first Vice-Chancellor ever to be asked to deliver the Boyer Lectures, but Professor Davis is also a political scientist and a researcher in the field of public policy. Glyn Davis was educated in arts at the University of New South Wales and the Australian National University before postdoctoral appointments as a Harkness Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, work at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. and the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and a companion in the Order of Australia. And he served as co-chair of the Australia 2020 Summit. Among his many international roles, Professor Davis chairs Universitas 21, a group of 24 world-leading universities, and he serves as a director of the Menzies Centre for Australian Studies at King's College London. Please welcome Professor Glyn Davis to deliver the first 2010 Boyer Lecture in his series The Republic of Learning. Today's lecture is called The Global Moment. Thank you. Ego mundi cavus esse cupio, wrote Erasmus to a friend in 1522. I should like to be a citizen of the world. And so he proved. Erasmus of Rotterdam was arguably the first modern global citizen. He was neither statesman nor soldier, not artist, but an intellectual. And more precisely, Erasmus was an academic. Erasmus was the best-known international thinker of his era, far more famous in his day than today's celebrated professors. Prolific does not quite do Erasmus justice. In the 1530s, he wrote perhaps a fifth of all of the books sold in the world. Like other popular thinkers, Erasmus displayed a gift for expressing ideas simply. He's credited with saying, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. He reworked Pliny to urge, live as if you are to die tomorrow, study as if you were to live forever. Many students obey the first clause, and the best heed both. And certainly at fewer than 140 characters, both sayings would fit easily into the flowing river of Twitter. Yet while an extraordinary thinker, Erasmus was just the best known of an impressive network of academics who corresponded and travelled across the great universities of the then known world, Oxford, Cambridge, Padua, the Sorbonne, and private academies in those cradles of classical education, Florence, Venice and Rome. In her 2009 Man Booker Prize-winning novel, Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel 
portrays the friendship between Erasmus and the one he famously dubbed a man for all seasons, the churchman, lawyer, philosopher and statesman Sir Thomas More. Erasmus once wrote an entire book called In Praise of Folly in just a week to amuse his friend More. But it was also a world in which ideas were taken seriously and had consequences. Thomas More famously lost his head for refusing to bend convictions to political imperative. These thinkers were by no means exclusively from an economic elite or ruling class. Thomas More was wealthy and became Lord Chancellor of England, the Prime Minister of his day. Yet the pattern of the 16th century shows that smart boys from humble backgrounds, it was centuries before the same privilege extended to women, could win scholarships and enter this glittering circle. Erasmus was the illegitimate child of a trainee priest and a doctor's daughter, not particularly high-paid professions back then, but callings that took education seriously. Though in his teens Erasmus lost both his parents to plague, he had the good fortune to be educated in schools and monasteries renowned for valuing knowledge. We know the appearance of these men because More, Erasmus and many others had their portraits painted by leading artists of their day, including Holborn the Younger. Each typically is shown in their study, surrounded by books in Latin and Greek. And this clue suggests two important characteristics for these intellectuals. They saw themselves as part of a conversation through correspondence in shared scholarly languages. And they were the first generation of Westerners to live entirely in the age of the printing press. Armed with their new thinking and new communications, Erasmus and his contemporaries aspired to be citizens of the world. And though it remained a man's world, some women participated through sheer brilliance and force of character. Margaret, daughter of Thomas More, was regarded as the most intelligent woman in England, like her near contemporary Queen Elizabeth I, highly regarded for her Greek and Latin composition. We know Erasmus and his contemporary group of scholars as the Republic of Letters. The term was drawn from Respublica Litera, which might translate as Commonwealth of Learning or perhaps Commonwealth of Scholars, a group of people who saw themselves as intellectual equals, committed to sharing knowledge. By circulating their letters and books to sympathetic audiences, by discussing new ideas and developing a critical apparatus for assessing claims to knowledge, these leading thinkers in Europe created a conversation outside the normal constraints of nationality and censorship. They inhabited an imagined community, a world in which scholars conversed through writing. The metaphor of a republic of letters was taken seriously and often literally. Learned academies were established across Europe to receive and discuss the letters carrying new learning. Just as scholars were concerned to establish rules of evidence, so these academies invented elaborate rules to shape and govern exchanges. They may be regarded, suggests historian Peter Burke, as so many mini-republics, each with its own written constitution. Like republics, the learned academies prided themselves on being self-governing. They were zealous about independence from worldly power. These were places of debate and disagreement, but places where equal citizens practice intellectual freedom. And the result? 
as one of the leading historians of this movement, Cambridge, Cambridge University's Quentin Skinner argues, the Republic of Letters helped initiate an intellectual revolution which eventually led to the overthrow of scholasticism, which is to say it replaced a way of thinking based on revealed truth with one grounded in rational inquiry. So, for instance, while scholastics accepted Plato's teaching that the earth lay at the centre of a series of spheres, spheres, members of the new Republic of Letters used mathematics, systematic observation, and later new instruments, such as the quadrant and the telescope, to explore the actual movement of heavenly bodies. Before this Republic of Letters, the few universities in Europe were remote, monastic, and contemplative organisations, focused on a limited store of ancient texts. Through their own structures and activities, these universities expressed the Aristotelian ideal of a divinely ordered universe whose hierarchy was reflected in society itself. Erasmus and his generation challenged this idea of scholarship as the exposition of revealed truth. The Republic of Letters instead encouraged universities to become lively, questioning institutions, concerned less with arid, abstract contemplation and more with how we should live. They created self-conscious communities where students and scholars explored new learning, operating through formal rules that encouraged debate and argument and evidence and became, in time, the basis of scientific method. Every new idea has a history. The European humanists, in turn, drew on rich contributions to scholarship from Indian, Chinese and Arab thinkers. The long-established universities of the Arab world made significant contributions to mathematics and astronomy, preserving as well the Greek classics that inspired the humanists. In the following centuries, universities would contribute to the scientific and industrial revolutions, and while much was invented by people who worked outside campus, many were informed by a new way of thinking first expressed in letters and lectures. The Republic of Letters was a forerunner to our world, the first intimation of one of those rare moments in humanity, as a character says in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, where the door is kicked open and a new world revealed. 500 years later, there's a new exchange underway. Once again, across borders and languages, a sharing of ideas and people on an unprecedented scale. It's the modern world of higher education, the republic of learning. We might think of the republic ideal as merely the absence of a monarch, but in classical and Renaissance times, it meant so much more. Republics were understood as one of the crowning glories of human invention, settings for freedom in which people could pursue the humanist goal of perfectibility of our intellect, culture and social relations. Republics were not always democratic in the modern sense, but they treated their citizens equally and respected the rule of law. They devoted a notion or they developed a notion of civic virtue that placed the public good above the private. Republics accepted disagreement as a necessary part of the human condition, the only way citizens can understand their options and make an informed choice. Republicans invented institutions to ventilate and resolve differences 
recognising in the words of the English constitutional writer Walter Bajot that no state can be first-rate which has not a government by discussion. Republics were fiercely independent islands in seas of tyranny and conformity. Given this commitment to competition of ideas, they accepted diversity as essential. Monarchies may be centralised and uniform, understood through their gaps and silences. In a republic, as Alex de Tocqueville said of early America, no elite or metropolis prevailed, but rather the intelligence and power of the people are disseminated through all the parts of this vast country, and instead of radiating from a common point, they cross over each other in every direction. As with ancient Rome, republics were restless, ambitious, outward-looking, global in orientation, keen to conquer the blue skies. They wanted to share their innovations in law, philosophy, culture and society with the world. Erasmus and his contemporaries put these principles to work and changed their world. They inspired later generations to cast an even wider net of ideas, extending this conversation across the Atlantic. The original Republic of Letters saw just a handful of intellectuals converse through languages understood by only a minuscule proportion of the population produced on hand-operated printing presses. By contrast, today's Republic of Learning is vast in scale, with a membership in the hundreds of millions. No longer donkeys and round-bottomed ships to transport scholars and their books at sailing pace. No longer languages of the few, Latin and Greek, but English, Spanish and Mandarin, in a global society aspiring to worldwide literacy. For handwritten letters that took weeks to arrive, now the immediacy of email. For Gutenberg's press and movable type, the internet and personal computers, whole libraries, compressed centuries of learning, available instantly. This republic of learning spans the planet, shaping every nation, including our own. In Australia, going to university, once unusual, has become a standard expectation for young people. More than a million Australian and international students study this year in our university system, and nearly twice that number again in vocational and technical education. In many metropolitan and regional centres, Universities and technical colleges are the largest local employers, sometimes rivalled only by hospitals, themselves allied to university medical schools. The knowledge and skills provided by higher learning help drive the extraordinary increases in wealth Australians have enjoyed in recent decades. Graduates locate minerals in the Kimberley, staff our advanced medical services, design our transport networks, spin the wheels of finance, advise government ministers, regulate industries, analyse social trends, produce the movies, theatre, television, books and small magazines that trace our national preoccupations. Researchers in our Republic of Learning discover new knowledge, opening further possibilities for humanity, from advances in health that improve life expectancy to insights into political economy that encourage more affluent and socially just societies, from inventions in information technology to speed up global communications to the insights of climate scientists that might just prove crucial for survival on this planet, university research contributes to understanding 
and innovation. Higher learning gives us the human capital to ensure future prosperity and the cultural capital to find greater meaning in our lives. This enthusiastic involvement in the Republic of Learning is replicated across the world. A handful of humanists in the time of Erasmus has grown to more than 150 million higher education staff and students worldwide. The small flocks of adventurous scholars making intellectual pilgrims between England, Italy, France and the German states have become three and a half million students travelling abroad every year to study. The university has become a familiar institution, reproduced thousands of times across the globe. Many republics, each claiming independence from the societies around them, committed to truth and knowledge as universal values to be identified through shared standards of scholarship. This new global reality gives students unprecedented opportunities to study in other places, to mix with people from different cultures, to rise above the surly bonds of place, to do what learning does best, allow us each to break the narrow prison of self and understand worlds beyond our direct experience. The expansion of higher education, this republic of learning, makes knowledge available to an audience wider than any previously imagined. It encourages global mobility of people and ideas. One byproduct is a huge world trade in higher education, worth more than $35 billion a year in English-speaking countries alone. And who guessed that Australia would prove amongst the most successful providers of higher education in the world? Despite our small number of institutions, some 7% of the world's international students choose to study in Australia. They find quality universities, welcoming cities, and truly international campuses, with one in five students at every Australian university drawn from overseas, we host the most internationalised higher education system in the world. Whether these international students ultimately return home or stay to make a life in Australia, they engage with our nation and they carry that experience throughout their lives. The benefits for our nation are vast, if intangible. At a meeting last year in Kuala Lumpur with Malaysian government ministers, I asked everyone about their education and was pleasantly to surprise, surprised to discover that a majority were graduates of Australian universities and inclined hopefully to therefore to warm and closer relations between our nations. Few appreciate just how much Australia's current prosperity rests on this new export industry called education. International students spend $3.7 billion every year at Australia's 37 public and two private universities. But for every dollar an international student invests in learning, they spend another two on services and accommodation and food and entertaining while living in Australia. There are businesses and families across this land, far from the world of education, whose livelihood and prospects depend on the global trade in education. For them, Australia rides on the scholar's back. Universities have become one of the world's major incentives for people movement. They act as magnets for those in search of new opportunity, much like the gold fields or the rich pastoral expansion of 19th century Australia. 
as Ben Wildaski noted in The Great Brain Race. Universities have become part of the international competition for talent, for innovation, for renewal. Visionaries and reformers talked for decades about opening up our once insular, provincial, protectionist and lucky island nation. Higher education has proved a large part of that change and it happened quickly. Hardly anyone noticed at first, yet look around and see its mighty works. The flow of students has made Australia a global destination. The most recent RMIT index, measuring the world's most lively, diverse and intellectually vibrant urban centres, ranks London, Boston and Tokyo, the great international cities, followed immediately by Melbourne and Sydney, significantly ahead of Paris, New York, Berlin or Hong Kong. As we debate population matters, we should be careful to keep in mind and to keep this precious new knowledge industry strong. The invisible hand of student spending shapes our cities, brings the world to our table, keeps Australia affluent, connected and young. And the traffic flows both ways. Thousands of young Australians experience study abroad as part of their university course, sharpening their language skills, developing empathy for the cultures of Asia and beyond, building links that will serve through their lives. In any week, Australian alumni will gather somewhere. Lawyers in Shanghai, accountants in London, artists in Singapore, marine biologists in San Diego. These graduates are harbingers of an emerging Australia, at home in the world and in our region. It's far more difficult to maintain a closed society when so many of the leaders have wider horizons. Look at the faces in the street, the lecture hall, the library. Students who study in large public universities and numerous private colleges, who live around their campus, who bring youth and vitality to our cities. Drawn from everywhere, international students help create and enjoy the diverse, tolerant, enriched society Australia has long promised. These young people are our single largest source of new citizens. They are the generation that will, in, our, in their time, make our society truly global. And the benefits are much more than economic. What happens in our universities helps us live longer, reduces the tyranny of distance and time, produces insight into the nature of the universe itself. Thanks to higher education, we too live in an era when the door is kicked open and we can glimpse what waits beyond. For students, the growth of a global system of higher education has opened opportunities for people, young and old, to study abroad, to seek new knowledge through online courses, to share in the contest of ideas at the heart of campus life. Nation states too have come to value universities as sources of skilled professionals, research and invention. For many nations, building great universities has become a mark of their global competitiveness. The current investment in new facilities and China and the Middle East alone is beyond anything in human history. Whole settlements are being designed around universities. In southern China, the Guangzhou University City is a new education precinct containing 10 university campuses spread over more than 18 square kilometres. And this is just the first stage. 
Eventually, authorities hope 200,000 students and 20,000 academic staff will live and study in this planned community. In September 2009, the Saudi government opened the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, a 36-square-kilometre complex by the Red Sea. With a $10 billion endowment, this co-educational university is designed to build Saudi strength in research. Said the King at the opening ceremony, the Islamic nation knows too well that it will not be powerful unless it depends on, after God, science. There is more construction underway on campuses across the world than at any other time in human history. The global competition for students and staff has become fierce and unrelenting. Universities are forming international associations, seeding new campuses abroad, simultaneously treating each other as equals and desperately competing across the planet. Institutions are crossing board, borders, becoming multinational, operating in many places but owned by none. For the first time ever, such institutions can be compared and graded in global ranking systems, so creating an international hierarchy of status. Yet change is always creative and destructive. Just as the birth of the Republic of Letters spelt the end of the medieval university system, the technologies that allow universities to become global institutions also test the familiar style of campus education. As the web makes knowledge widely available, so it undercuts the traditional authority of professors. What was once largely a public, or at least not-for-profit activity, has attracted large and successful private competitors. Mail-order courses always existed on the margins of higher education, but the combination of new technology and sophisticated private provision has created commercial phenomena such as the private University of Phoenix. These global enterprises package for a worldwide market programs once only offered by traditional public universities. As new humanist academies arose in the 16th century to challenge the scholastic institutions, so new forms of learning confront received wisdom about what a university is, what it does, and how it works. The effects will be far-reaching but unpredictable. Even as it opens new possibilities, change undermines existing institutions, challenges regulatory frameworks, upsets our expectations of the world. The growth of international networks and global competition subvert a national approach to education and upset everything we think we know about higher learning. What emerges is a new republic of learning, a dense global universe of institutions, providers and websites, competing products and educational philosophies, all seeking to package knowledge, share it widely and sometimes profit from it. Older standards of prestige and authority of universities as gatekeepers of knowledge are called into question by this new world. As the importance of higher learning increases, this seems the right time to consider the republic of learning and with it the prospects for our nation in an age of knowledge. Though the focus of these lectures will be on universities, those institutions I know best, it is impossible to consider higher learning without acknowledging the important contribution of the vocational and technical colleges, private providers and international campuses that share the post-school education mission across this nation. 
in the weeks to follow, we will explore this new world of higher learning, the centrality of teaching, the rise of research, the difficult question of who gets to be a citizen of the Republic of Learning, life on campus, and the policy questions for a sector that's nationally based, but increasingly global in outlook. The tone will be optimistic. Universities are re reasserting their role as centres of thinking and doing so with unprecedented reach and significance. They've become vital to national economic growth, to the life chances and potential happiness of every Australian. And universities remain the most extraordinary places to study and work, fascinating amalgams of medieval custom and modern management. They've become the inspiration for the most successful global companies, such as Google, which build campuses instead of factories or offices, arrange staff in the loose structures of university departments, and compete with graduate school for the best and the brightest. We'll trace the evolution of the modern university as it builds on the values that animated the original Republic of Learning inspired by Erasmus half a millennium ago. Niccolo Machiavelli, amongst the greatest theorists of republicanism, understood republics in his day as highly imperfect states, always in flux. Yet each republic was unique, hard to govern, sometimes chaotic, yet with characteristics that made them worth defending. In a sea of despotism, reaction and intellectual conformity, the republics of Machiavelli's day were islands of equality, freedom, progress, choice and genius. Their achievements set the pace for the rest of humanity. And stagnation was always the real enemy. Stagnation and success in any society are the enemies of innovation. Stagnation can result when communities seek to constrain knowledge for cultural, economic or religious reasons. And stagnation can happen too inside the academy. So these lectures will celebrate diversity there is no single best model for a university, no gold standard despite the impression imposed by university rankings. A society does best when it has access to diversity and specialisation, to a lively and contesting set of voices offering very different philosophies of higher education. Hence we will close in six weeks by asking where to from here, what policy choices will ensure the Republic of Learning delivers for Australia its extraordinary potential? And will Australians make the investment necessary to reap the harvest of knowledge, skills and culture that await? Just as every university is both ancient and modern, traditional and innovative, so the original proponents of the Republic of Letters believed in change and preservation. Progress, they argued, is constructed on the achievements of the past. Erasmus sought to reform the corrupt church of his time, but he recognised that change also offers temptation to zealotry, immoderation, intolerance and shallowness. He saw change for change's sake as an enemy of the good society or of any hope to build a better one. Erasmus sought to conserve as well as improve and so, apparently paradoxically, he became a reformer who opposed full-scale church reformation. His powers of reason told him there were aspects of the old church worth retaining. It's a spirit worth emulating as we consider higher education. Much needs to be done that is new, 
but much needs to be preserved. The constants of learning, wide-ranging curiosity, questioning, rigour in the search for truth and knowledge, these must remain guiding principles in a new republic of learning. They ensure universities are more than skills factories. Some mistakenly believe that students only apply to university as their way to a job, that the rest of the campus experience is nothing but drinking beer. Observation strongly suggests otherwise. Yes, universities produce knowledge workers. Their contribution to human capital and national productivity is important and can be measured. Yet time at university is cherished because it's about more than getting a job. Not everyone will live in college, perform in student theatre, run for office in the student union, join the debating society or study abroad. But everyone who leaves university with a qualification, and sometimes without, is touched forever by the experience. They're no better than anybody else, but they are equipped with training to interrogate and understand the world. Graduates have been exposed to a universal culture that values the intellect as something worthwhile in its own right. They are recognisably the heirs of Erasmus and more, members of an invisible but shared republic of learning. How this spirit is imparted through teaching will be the subject of the next lecture. But ego mundi chaos esse cupio. It is a noble ambition, now possible thanks to a global movement of people and ideas. To be a citizen of the world is the promise of the Republic of Learning. Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, delivering the first 2010 Boyer Lecture in his series, The Republic of Learning. You're listening to Big Ideas on ABC Radio National, coming to you from the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas in Melbourne. And I'll now invite our audience to ask some questions of our Boyer Lecturer. While the uh, microphone's going through, Glyn, I'll ask you a question myself. You've given us a very positive view of the university, a, a mini-republic, independent from the society around it, committed to truth and knowledge and universal values. It sounds like a wonderful place. We'd all like to go there. But I wonder if the reality is a bit more prosaic in Australia. I mean, if we don't have, in fact, budget-driven institutions dominated by managerialism that are really expected to meet fairly utilitarian imperatives by government, that is, churning out the graduates we need to keep the economy moving? It's a common critique, and it's commonly suggested that universities are, have turned into nothing more than skills factories. In the drum this week, there's a debate going on about higher education in which a whole range of people have responded in those terms. It's all very well. This is well. The, the ABC website, The Drum. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, in, that was a free plug there, Peter. It was a free <laughs> plug, but I wanted to make sure the audience uh, knew what you were talking about. 
There's a, a discussion going on amongst uh, the many enthusiastic people who've written in, and many of them are criticising universities, although they often begin by saying, you know, it's 20 years since I've been on campus, comma, but um, I'm still acutely aware of everything that happens there, which is quite an achievement. Um, <laughs> and it's important to say these are not the institutions of 25 years earlier. They are institutions that have gone through a phase of, without doubt, of becoming much more aware of their budgets and so on. And we could spend the entire afternoon and evening running through all the things that are wrong with them. But if you stand back and say, what do they actually deliver for our country, and more importantly, for the individuals who go through them, and that's what we should be focused on, they are transformative. And you talk to any graduate about their own experience. And even if they tell you that some of it's drudgery and they remember how they you know, made a mess of some exam papers or um, borrowed someone else's essay to get through that final assignment, the truth is when you press them about the experience, it is... It, for them, it's the time when they thought about who they were, they thought about the life they wanted to lead, and they made some fundamental decisions about the values that they were going to carry through the rest of that life. They might not recognise it at the time. Like much in life, you work backwards and you realise that's what it achieved for you. That's why they're important. OK, we'll take the first question. You spoke of government by discussion and you spoke of global trade. I wondered if you might care to comment on what limits or inhibitions might be on government by discussion and what barriers there might be to the global trade. I'm wondering if you could just explain your first point about limits on government by discussion. What do you have in mind? In these days, government by discussion, we have governments inhibiting us with um, unfreedom of information. We have emperors of news seeking to put up paywalls. We have people on the other side of the fence trying to defend electronic frontiers. Thank you. I guess when Erasmus and co were writing, they lived in a world in which censorship was pervasive. It was just understood that that's what would happen. And the reason they wrote letters principally to each other was because that was a way you could work around censorship. When de Tocqueville wrote about early America, he compared it quite expressly to France in, in this interesting way. He said, in France, there are newspapers. We don't believe anything that we read in them because they're government-controlled and censored. We look for the gaps and the silences. We come to America and we find this extraordinary place where you can publish anything you want, no matter how silly or mad, um, and you have to read it and make up your own mind, but you do so from this tumult of opinion and advice. And it's quite a different concept of how the world runs. So I, I would share with you concerns about constraints on freedom of expression and freedom of government by discussion, but I guess the contrast I'm trying to draw is between two very different styles of the world, and the universities have always been, since the 16th century, always been on the side of free expression. And the argument for academic freedom, for example, is principally an argument that people should be able to say in their area of expertise what they know to be true, even if it's unwelcome and unpopular. And I can say um, all those who work in university management know that um, our staff are keen to do so, uh, seize the opportunity often, and rightly expect that provided they speak within the normal constraints of politeness and accuracy, that the university will back and support them, as we do. On the global trade, um, it's very hard to, to say where this is going to go. Uh, Australia has around 20% of its student body drawn internationally in the university sector, slightly 
are lower in other sectors, but growing very, very fast. For example, in the TAFE sector, the fastest growing sector. Um, are we going to hit a natural limit or are we going to imagine a day when there are Australian universities that are principally international in focus? And I think most of us in the sector who've discussed this would say, what is the logic of privileging local students over international students? What is the argument that says our universities should be predominantly local if we believe that knowledge, talent and merit are widely distributed and those are the basis on which we should bring students in and train them? What's the intrinsic argument uh, that says that universities should have a particular national character? And that same argument is going on around the planet. And most people, not universities, find it a very uncomfortable argument because the assumption is we're taxpayers, these are public institutions, we should be getting... There should be privileged places for local students. It's one of those points of tension where what's happening inside the university is quite different from what's happening in the wider society. It's why it's worth talking about, I think. OK, we have another question at the back. We went rapidly from republic to corporation, I think, in your, your address, and um, there was a sense that... Uh, We've got to the stage where knowledge is a commodity. Um, not necessarily a bad thing, but given that corporations now have some sort of overview of, with their corporate responsibilities or social responsibilities, what do you see um, the knowledge sector and their responsibilities in terms of their social um, charter with the public re relating to, say, the courses that don't necessarily break even, the public discussion and facilitating and, and encouraging your academics to engage in public discussion and indeed putting information out there on the web such as podcasts, podcasts and the like. Thank you. And as I'm sure you are acutely aware, every university in this country is doing all of those things, making public lectures available, podcasting, providing material online. We now encourage public publication of work that we do on our own websites so that people can access them or on common websites. One of the interesting questions about knowledge as a commodity, however, and to be blunt, knowledge has always been a commodity. You've always had to pay for books. You didn't get given them. Uh, it is someone's intellectual product that you're buying. Uh, is that that is being undermined in turn by Google Books and by um, the, the technology that allows you to scan and, and send stuff for free. And there's a very interesting question to come about whether the industries that have supported knowledge will remain viable, in particular, think about media and book publishing, what their future is, and consequently whether we're not going to see a, a really radical transformation in the understanding of how knowledge is structured, paid for, delivered, and who controls it. One of the things that will challenge universities is that we're used to being the gatekeepers. We're used to whole areas where if you want to be a doctor, you'd better go to university. But there are now private organisations seeking to provide qualifications in many, many areas uh, on a very different basis, and that means that we will be as challenged in the university sector as will publishers, as will media corporations, about the way knowledge is now being transmitted. Can I just um, follow up? One yeah. of the other points raised there was what about the social obligation to courses that don't pay their yeah. way? Uh, you you yes. talked about Latin, for example. Yeah. That might be one example. You might also talk about a language like Hindi and yeah. some other courses within the universities where demand is low, but a lot of people feel there's a real value 
to the knowledge and to maintaining that knowledge and teaching it and researching yeah. it. And I think that would be widely shared. And again, it would be hard to find a public university in the country that isn't supporting a whole range of courses that wouldn't be justified on economic grounds, but that was never the reason for offering them and not, therefore, the reason, the criteria to apply them. But there's a lot of pressure there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're under a financial pressure like lots of other parts of the institution. And just as people say of the ABC, um, why aren't you serving my particular interests or area with more resources and you say because it's a finely balanced judgment between those things we can support and those things we can't universities go through the same course uh, um, universities are fantastically complicated arenas for cross-subsidy um, they have budget systems that are, are unintelligible even if you work in them let alone from the outside but much of that is about trying to shift resources around so that areas that um, can't support themselves through income are nonetheless supported. And one of the reasons for doing that is because we're used to fashion dominating student choice. There was a time in the 1960s when the mining sector was going extraordinarily well. Universities across the country opened schools of mines and produced geologists and um, geotechnicians, and then you got a collapse into the 1970s and lots of unemployed people, numbers fell away, and many of those schools were closed. Now, as we've gone back into another boom, we've discovered acute skill shortages because we didn't keep alive. You can tell that same story in IT after the collapse of the early 2000s and in many other fields. You might run a very convincing argument. I think that you need to keep alive whole areas of scholarship because of potential future need, and you shouldn't need to justify them on ut utilitarian grounds. Um, you might say, we have a national interest here. This is Big Ideas on ABC Radio National, the first Boyer Lecture from the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas in Melbourne. And uh, Boyer Lecturer Professor Glyn Davis is taking questions from the audience. And we have another question here. With the debate on whether or not Australia should adapt a national broadband network or not, do you believe that education may become completely reliant on the internet? <laughs> um, and I'm deeply impressed that you read that question off from your iPhone, um, <laughs> which is which is a nice example of the way knowledge is going. The NBN has the potential to be extraordinarily important to education, and those of us in the sector are excited about the possibilities that it will produce. Most universities have experimented with online courses, and some have got a substantial proportion of their material online. Student responses tend to be a little ambivalent. People immensely like the convenience of being able to see the lectures online anytime they like and interact and do much of the tutorial work. But some of universities still essentially are social. It's about meeting other people and like-minded conversations and being part of a, a meeting. People like to spend time with their teachers. They like to get to know these people whose work they've read but who they'd like to meet firsthand. It seems to me unlikely that we are moving to a purely internet-delivered education system. One final question, yes. Uh, yeah, thanks, Glenn. Um, I've been rereading Donald Horne's The Lucky Country uh, recently, and uh, in the 1960s he was lamenting the extent to which uh, academics and intellectuals, which he actually classified into two separate groups, <laughs> uh, interestingly, um, and uh, the extent to which they were engaging uh, and leading public debate, particularly public policy debate, and uh, I wonder if we now have an improved situation in relation to the, uh, uh, the institutions for ventilating and resolving differences and whether our academics 
are actually engaging, uh, being provided the opportunity to engage effectively in those institutions. Thank you very much. And it's great to hear Donald Horn raised in this, uh, in this venue. Uh, as a student, I was extremely fortunate. He was my honours supervisor at the University of New South Wales, and so I, I spent a year uh, work writing a thesis under his direction, and in doing so, as one did, read everything that you could lay your hands on that, that he'd written. And one of the interesting shifts in his thinking was between the 1960s when he wrote The Lucky Country and the late 70s, early 1980s when I was studying under him. It was a different country he was describing in a relatively short space of time and his books like The Public Culture began to talk about those very people he'd criticised in the 60s, how in the 80s they were part of a, a very important public conversation. So uh, he's a nice touchstone, I think, for some fundamental changes. It is very hard as an academic still to become a voice in public debate. We are fortunate we have the ABC, we have some important publications that give those opportunities. They're still rare. And uh, some of that difficulty of being heard in areas of expertise remains so. It's also probably equally frustrating for the professions and others who want to get uh, in the conversation. There are many filters and barriers to, to being part of it. It matters that universities provide opportunities. It matters they value them, they celebrate the academic staff who do go out and speak publicly and that, as I mentioned earlier, that there's a sense on campus that it's expected of you, supported and cherished and it's a test of the university culture about whether that can be maintained. I'm sorry we don't have time to take all the questions. I know there are more questions out there. But to conclude the first 2010 Boyer Lecture on ABC Radio National and to thank our speaker, Professor Glyn Davis, I'd like to welcome Mr Morris Newman, AC, the chairman of the ABC board, to offer a vote of thanks. Well, thank you, Peter. And uh, what a tour de force. And... Uh, Fortunately, there's another five to come. The permanent challenges for all great institutions, cultural institutions in particular, is of course to retain relevance and usefulness in modern life. So it seems to me to be particularly fitting that the ABC is able to present Professor Davis's Boyer Lectures this year on the Republic of Learning, examining this challenge for our fellow cultural institutions that make up Australia's higher education sector. Last year, the government responded to the Bradley Review of Higher uh, Education by setting a significant goal to ensure by 2025, just 15 years away, 40% of 25 to 34-year-olds would have a bachelor degree or higher. So it is not uh, an exaggeration to say that what is at stake here uh, is the fate of a generation, a fate that will be in the hands of the higher education sector. And what happens there will determine Australia's place in the world, our relationship with our neighbours and our future cultural, economic and civil life. Consider how many of the most significant features of contemporary life and culture arose from university life, and we heard something of that uh, just now not necessarily by sticking to strict career paths, but due to the self-discovery that took place there, the higher educational experience. The founders of Google came from Stanford. Every Australian Prime Minister since Menzies has been to university. Harvard gave us Facebook, 
and the world can give thanks to Sydney University for Dr. Jermaine Greer and the Chaser Boys. <laughs> I'm sure Melbourne uh, University would uh, rather lay claim to uh, Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, last year's uh, Nobel Prize winner in, in medicine, and uh, Barry Humphreys. But uh, Professor Davis has distilled a lifetime's experience and learning into these six lectures. They range from the, the birth of the university in Europe's Renaissance to the recent development of private universities such as Bond and Notre Dame in Australia. And within these talks, listeners will find a depth of understanding and insight about the challenges. Those already met and many still ahead in modern university life. In fact, I couldn't help feeling as I was reading them that if only when I became the Chancellor of Macquarie University that I'd had uh, Professor Davis by my side. But on behalf of the ABC and on behalf of future generations of Australians, I'd really like to extend our gratitude and thanks. Thank you. Morris Newman, Chair of the ABC Board, with a vote of thanks to conclude the first 2010 Boyer Lecture by Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, coming to you from the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas in Melbourne. And Professor Davis's series, The Republic of Learning, continues at the same time next week on ABC Radio National. The second lecture focuses on teaching in our universities, and it will be followed by a panel discussion to tease apart some of Professor Davis's ideas. To feed into that discussion, we'd welcome your thoughts via the website abc.net.au slash rn slash Boyer Lectures, where you'll find both audio and a transcript of today's presentation. I'm Peter Mayers, and on ABC Radio National, it's coming up to the news. James Elroy is described as the demon dog of American crime fiction. In this Cheltenham interview, Elroy lets loose a few of his own demons in our discussion of his latest memoir, The Hillica Curse. In it, he tells of a life pursuing women, how the 10-year-old James coped with his mother's murder, of drug and alcohol addictions, God, Republicans and Beethoven. James Elroy on The Book Show. Download or stream the program from the Radio National website.